turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and then 36 through 43. In the Pew Bible, that's page 818. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who has sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in the gathering of the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Amen. Thank you, Chris, for giving that a read for us. I'll give a prayer for us now as we uh, turn to it together. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that in this very moment that you would give us faith to receive your word, that you grant to us understanding to know what it means, and then by grace, the will to put it into practice. Uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. If you grew up in a mainline denomination, a Presbyterian or Lutheran, or even the Roman Catholic Church, then you probably celebrated Advent during the month of uh, December. Advent is this four-week uh, season of preparation set aside by Christians uh, to remember Jesus's first arrival and then to anticipate his second coming. As a kid, I grew up in the church, but I didn't grow up in a mainline denomination, and so I think uh, the best I could remember this week, the most we did in terms of celebrating Advent was we lit one more candle than we typically do, which was basically zero. I don't say that by way of criticism. I just put it out there to acknowledge that in a room like this, we're, we're probably a mixture of Advent familiar and a little Advent unaware. If I were to summarize our take as Parkside Westside when it comes to Advent, I think that we're Advent appreciative, but also a little Advent arbitrary. Uh, there have been uh, some uh, years in which we've had a sermon series on themes of Advent and others which we haven't. And my thinking this year was to just keep moving along through our studies in Matthew's gospel and then we'll get to having an Advent sermon on the 24th of December. I say all of that as precursor because uh, this past week, uh, my Advent sermon strategy planning uh, both changed and stayed the same. The reason being because on Monday, I just had this, this light bulb moment 
when I realized that this next parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 is full of Advent themes. Themes about waiting and wanting and longing and patience and all the rest. And so it turns out we're going to have an, an Advent sermon today, a bit earlier than I anticipated, but I'm glad that we are. Uh, because Advent is this season of uh, expectant waiting. Expectant waiting. It's uh, about tapping into the sense that we have that life here on planet Earth is not right. We certainly have a, a sense of this as we pay attention to what goes on around us. There's, there's terrorism and violence. There's food insecurity in our neighborhoods. There's domestic abuse behind closed doors. There's the rusting of our cars. There's the ailment of our bodies. As Christians, we, we know life isn't as it was meant to be and why that's the case. And so we actually have this longing placed by God within us for him to come and, and make things right again. In, in that way, there's actually kind of a dark tone to Advent. It's not really sentimental, like uh, candy canes and cookies and grandma's house. There, there's a good place for that. But uh, there's actually a darkness to Advent because we say to one another as Christians that I'm just tired of this. I, I'm worn out from it all. I have a restless heart. I'm longing for this broken world to, to be put back together. And this is a time of the year for us to say to one another with eyes of faith, it's going to happen. There is the more and better yet to come. The reason that we can say that to each other is because Advent connects the dots between Jesus' incarnation and his second uh, coming, his imminent return. So at his first coming, he made a way for our salvation. And at his second coming, he's going to make all that's gone wrong in the world right. Two endpoints. Right now, we're living in the in-between point, in between Jesus' first and second advent. And this parable that he next teaches about the weeds and the wheat tell us a lot about why life can be so difficult and miserable during this in-between time. At the same time, his parable also assures us that it's going to get better because the not-rightness of our weary and broken world is going to be swallowed up by the renewal of God's heavenly kingdom. This is what makes this parable a, a wonderful passage for Advent. A big part of what Jesus is doing is he, he's acknowledging the evils of life, and he's also planting seeds of hope for the better that is to come. Now, like the previous parable about the soils, uh, Jesus, first of all, tells this one to a crowd of people, and then later on, he explains its meaning in a more private way with his uh, disciples. So you've got the telling and the explaining again. And then in between, our narrator has slipped in another parable about a mustard seed and leaven, which uh, we'll get to on an upcoming Sunday. So with this little split in view, let's first of all turn our attention to the first set of verses about this parable in verses 24 through 30 which begins with this story about the activity of the enemy. The activity of the enemy. In this parable, uh, the hardworking farmer, the sower, isn't alone. Uh, the farmer has servants or day laborers who uh, help him do his seasonal planting. So the fellas sweat it out during the day under the, the burning Middle Eastern sun, and then they lay their head on their pillows at night, and they crash out, having been totally, totally tuckered out from the day. Perhaps uh, that's uh, the reason why they're unaware that under the cover of darkness, an enemy sneaks in and sows weeds throughout the field and then leaves. 
What's particularly diabolical about this maneuver is that the weeds that are planted are called tares or darnels, which look a lot like wheat in the early stages of growth. Uh, so it is that the covert actions of the enemy that go undetected for a time as the wheat sprouts and grows right alongside the weeds. Until one day, one of the servants notices what's taken place and runs to the owner and says, hey, didn't we buy those seeds at that specialty gardening center? You know, you pay top dollar for the organic ones. Weren't those, weren't those the good ones that we purchased? Well, I thought that was it, but something terrible has gone wrong because our field is now infested with weeds. Upon further investigation, the farmer concurs with his servant that the wheat and the weeds are growing together. Now, this isn't the farmer's first rodeo, and so he's able pretty quickly to put two and two together and to recognize that this uh, agricultural fiasco is most assuredly due to the actions of a rival farmer. This is the activity of the enemy. Now, the day laborer does uh, the best he can to be a good employee. He doesn't come to the boss just with his problems. He, offer, he also wants to give a solution. And so he proposes to the master that he and the other fellows, they pull the weeds out of the field, to which the farmer says, well, no, we can't do that because that's just going to end up ruining the entire crop of wheat. And that brings us now to the second significant part of Jesus' parable, which has to do with uh, patience. You'll notice both the patience of the sower and the patience of the servants. As the farmer says to his foreman, well, we're just going to have to let them both grow up together. And then at harvest time, you guys will need to separate the two from each other. We'll, we'll store the wheat, and then uh, we'll burn the weeds. You get it? It's a wise solution on the part of the farmer because the zeal of the workers would actually end up making things worse. And so the workers have got to trust that the, that the master knows what's best. And he says that they have to wait patiently until the timing is right. You can pretty easily imagine how difficult it would be for the servants to, to have to wait. I mean, just think about getting up each day and walking past the field and just being totally disheartened and, and frustrated by the entangled mess of things. How about the fact, too, that also uh, it would be true that the master would have a sense of disappointment. I don't think he'd enjoy the sight of the wheat field with weeds all over it. Nor would he relish the thought of harvesting too soon because that would destroy wheat along with the weeds. Which is to say, at the heart of this parable is the note of patience. Not just the patience of the servants who have to wait and watch, but also the patience of the master himself. A big theme in this, in this parable is the necessity of patience and waiting. So Jesus tells the parable to a large crowd, and then uh, later on, he explained it to the, uh, the disciples uh, when, they were, when, they, when it was just the, the few of them together. That's where we'll now jump to verses 36 through 43. One of them says, hey, Jesus, uh, can you explain this to us? Well, we're now recognizing what you're doing. You're telling these parables, these little stories that have spiritual truths tucked into them, and then you connect the dots. I mean, I've already figured it out, but Peter hasn't yet, so how about you just give us a run-through on what's uh, going on here? To which Jesus obliges and tells them, well, really, the story's about two things. Number one, the fact that there will be the judgment of the wicked, and number two, 
there will be the shining of the righteous. Before he gets to the, the judgment of the wicked, he says, well, first of all, let, let, let me just explain things from a, big picture, from a big picture perspective. Because if you're going to understand what this story is all about, you need to, first of all, recognize that, that I, Jesus, am, am the sower. I am uh, the master. You get it, fellas? Sowing seeds is what we've been doing together for these past months. I've, I've been particularly tossing the good seed of the good news into your lives And then I've been tossing this seed out into the lives of others who really have an ear to hear what I'm saying. And so it is that the good seeds in Jesus' parable represent believers. Or as he calls them in verse 38, the the sons, we'll get out to that, and the daughters of the kingdom. In contrast to them, uh, there are unbelievers who are called the sons and the daughters of the evil one. And they're symbolized by the weeds in the farmer's field. Now, speaking of the field, we have to take a a three-minute sidebar so that I can let you know that if you read two or three commentaries on this passage, you'll you'll recognize that there's some debate. There's debate as to whether the farmer's field is symbolic of like the world at large, or alternatively, it's a picture of the church. So uh, some people think that this parable is about how the world, uh, the field, is, uh, if you like, filled up with both Christians and non-Christians. We all live side by side each other, which can cause some messy entanglements. I think we get uh, that idea because as Christians, we work and uh, live alongside some non-Christian people, and sometimes that can be a source of of trouble and frustration and, and difficulty for us. Alternatively, others think the farmer's field is a picture of what, of what God's people are like, if you like, under the umbrella of the church. So, for example, in our gathering this morning, there are many believers among us, but most assuredly, there are also unbelievers among us. Uh, some who know themselves to not be Christians, others who falsely think that they are Christians, and potentially there's oh, even one or two who are subversive Uh, Troublemaking non-Christians In that way the, The parable can be a picture of the church Not yet totally sorted out And pure So in some two views Of the parable are that this is either a picture of A polarized world Or of a splintered church Now you'll have to think this out for yourself But upon study and reflection I'm inclined to think that the better Interpretation of Jesus' symbolic Use of the field is that it's a picture of Of the world more than that Of the church The reason primarily being is because of The observation that, that Every square inch On heaven and earth Falls under The falls under the rule Of God's kingdom purposes not, not just the field of the church. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hill. All the stars in the whole world belongs to him. And so it is uh, to the world at large that the good seeds of the kingdom are being sown all about. In fact, as Jesus scatters his followers uh, throughout the world into uh, the workplace, into institutions of learning, into our neighborhoods, into the, onto the mission field. As, as he scattered us, scatters us, we take his truth with us wherever we go. Here's what I mean. 
Whenever our Christian lives show and extend to others the mercy and the compassion of the kingdom, we are being good soil. So, for example, when, when you notice that a, that a friend is, is really upset, and you go and you sit next to her, and you listen really well, and then at the right moment you say to her, Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. But when you do that, Christian person, you are being good soil. You're bringing God's love and truth into a, a messy and evil and broken world. So Jesus scatters the sons and daughters of his kingdom throughout the world so that we can take his truth with us. And in one sense, it's almost as if we are his truth or certainly representatives of it. Now, just as Jesus scatters believers as seed, so the devil does the same. Verse 39. He resists God's kingdom indirectly by scattering his children throughout the earth in order to spoil God's restoration project. This is a pretty significant part of the story because uh, Jesus is telling us uh, just, just straight up that there are evil forces committed to thwarting God's purposes and destroying and making difficult uh, life for God's people. And what we're hearing in this parable is that the tactic of the evil one is infiltration. Infiltration. Sowing his bad seeds right alongside the good seeds. He, he relies upon treachery. He relies upon confusion. Jesus' point being that bad seeds, wicked people, evil opposition, those causing confusion and difficulty are going to be all around our lives. That's the tension of the parable. It's, of course, the, the reality of life for us as Christian people. Because we recognize that the kingdom of God has indeed arrived in and through Jesus' ministry. It has come, it is coming, and it is still yet to come. Which is to say that God's kingdom uh, doesn't all arrive in a bang, but really through a process of slow growth, like a, steadily, a steady development of a plant. And so right now, a good seed is being increasingly sown, but there's still the presence of evil and bad seed. That's part of uh, the honest acknowledgement that we make during Advent. Evil is seemingly having its way, causing a havoc and, and heartache most, most every single day. On Tuesday evening of this past week, I was driving back from a swim meet in Parma, and around uh, 9 p.m., I got stuck in that big traffic jam on I-90. Later on, I heard that the reason for it all was because that a fella was because a fella had stolen an Amazon van and that he had crashed it into another driver after going the wrong way on the Fulton overpass, and he, and he killed the other driver who's completely involved in the situation. That story, it just, it just stuck with me in a more than unusual way. For whatever reason, I said, I hope that that's not someone that I know. I didn't mean that in an uncaring way, but I just had a sinking feel about it. I was grieved by it on Wednesday and Thursday. Because I was just troubled by the senselessness of it all. Uh, the, the poor family who discovers that their 70-year-old loved one was just killed, uh, seemingly out of nowhere. Evil is having its way, causing havoc and heartache every single day. That's true, says Jesus. For a season of time, it is. 
until we reach, quote, verse 39, the end of the age. And then will come the judgment of the wicked. That is the seminal point uh, to Jesus's parable. Remember how the farmer said to the worker that we'll have to let things uh, just be for now and allow the weeds and the wheat to grow together. But then at harvest time, we'll, we'll sort the wheat from the weeds. If you like, we'll sort the good from the bad. And the weed is going to get tucked away safely and the weeds will get burned up. Well, in verse 40, Jesus connects the dots from that little story to the reality of life and says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeds of the son of the evil one, those who rebel against God's kingdom, those who break his laws, uh, those who live only for themselves, uh, the sons of the evil one are at the end of the age thrown into this fiery furnace in judgment. It is a grim uh, picture of condemnation for the wicked. As Jesus describes a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, notably, not a period of time, but a place of punishment that has no, no changing of seasons, that there will be the judgment of the wicked. The same thing comes through in another parable that Jesus tells a little bit later on in verses 47 through 50. I'm just going to reference it very briefly because it really ties in with the same one here. In that parable, there's, a, there's this great net that is thrown into the sea, and, it, and it, it scoops up all kinds of people. When the net is full, the fishermen bring it ashore, they sort out the catch, and we're told that the good fish are put into containers and the bad fish get thrown away. Now, being uh, tossed out doesn't sound as bad as the weeds getting burned up in the other parable— but, but then Jesus says nearly verbatim the same thing about evil people being thrown into the fiery furnace. In essence, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net are one and the same, and that their big uh, takeaway is that there will be the judgment of the wicked. And many people, of course, arrive against the notion of God's judgment. That is, I discover, until something wicked happens around them. Or, or something awful happens to them or someone uh, that they love. When that happens, no one has a problem with the victim appealing for God's judgment against the wicked or with the court of common pleas rendering a verdict of just judgment. But we want it. We need it. We demand it because the ruling of the judge brings about justice. So we, we want our district court judges to deal justly with those who do uh, unspeakable acts of evil uh, against children. We want our judges to deal justly with those who prey upon uh, the weak. We want judges to deal justly with those who bamboozle us and they steal our, uh, our identity online and then they clear out our bank accounts. We want uh, judges to deal justly with the driver who causes an accident and ruins the life of a family. Nobody complains if a judge punishes a lawbreaker for breaking one of our nation's laws. So, so why do people complain about God punishing someone for breaking his law? After all, our laws are imperfect. His law is perfect. The best of our judges do their best, but, but even still, they're imperfect justices. 
while God is he's all-knowing, he's altogether fair, and his judgment and justice are and are going to be without error. So uh, when Jesus talks about the judgment of the wicked, what he's getting at is actually good news because it means that God knows and that God cares and that God is just and that evil people and wicked people may have their way for now, but soon the season of time is going to conclude and then the end of the age will arrive when God's judgment will commence. Do you long for justice? Justice for those who've been wronged? Don't, don't you wish for a better world and a better place? For there to be no more murders or uh, sexual uh, assaults, uh, no more scandals, no more kidnappings? Uh, I heard a news story this past week that I won't repeat now because the details were so graphic that I could hardly believe they could uh, speak them on public radio. These awful things were done to, to women, and upon hearing my car, I was, I was on the corner of Riverside and Detroit, and I was so struck by it. And the only thing I could say was just, Lord... Have mercy. I don't know what else to say. Lord, have mercy. And then I thought of that story on Friday as I was typing these things out, and I took some comfort in knowing that we were going to say together the Apostles' Creed this morning because it says that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. The weeds will be weeded out. The bad fish will be sorted out. And they will be sent to eternal condemnation at the end of the age. Because God knows, God cares, God is just, he's all-knowing and altogether fair. His judgment and justice are and are going to be without error. It, it is good news that one day Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead. And there's even greater news for us today because the scriptures proclaim and herald to us this gospel story that when Jesus went to his cross, that he bore the judgment of God that should have deservedly fallen on you and me. You see, the Christian knows that apart from the grace of God, that we would be lumped in with the bad fish. But God, in his mercy, has opened our ears to hear that the Jesus who will judge us will also be the Savior for us. But because Jesus, think about it like this. Jesus took our sin upon himself, taking on the heat of the fiery furnace of God's wrath so that he might fully make us right with God. It's what we sang together this morning. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel. That is the Christian good news, that Jesus is the Savior for the damned. He's the Savior for those who hear him and trust him. He is the Savior of the undeserving. And now he is seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father as king of his kingdom. He's king of his kingdom because the kingdom of heaven broke in and is breaking in more and more when the seal on Jesus' tomb was broken open on that first Easter morning. And right now, in this very moment, King Jesus' parable that he told 2,000 years ago about the kingdom of heaven is being heard by us. It's being heard. And what are we hearing? Well, we're being warned of judgment. And we're also being offered salvation. 
Just let the word picture fall upon you, and that way the, the, the seeds of good news are landing all around you. I wonder if you haven't already, if you'll, if you'll take hold of one, if you'll take that seed and plant it deep uh, within you, and if you will, you'll watch it grow like wheat waiting to be harvested. Why would you want to remain as a weed? But won't you repent and turn to Jesus, the only one who can save you from the judgment to come? As Augustine once put it, those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. That is what the gospel does. In the lives of those who take hold of it and plant it deep within, weeds become wheat. You want some more good news? Well, here it is. After the eradication of evil, Jesus says in verse 43 that the righteous will shine like the sun. So at the end of the age, there will, there will be the judgment of the wicked and also uh, the shining of the righteous. The shining of the righteous. Now, right now, Christian people, we're, we're the light of the world. We can, of course, be rather dim at times or seemingly can be on the verge of being snuffed out. But in the age to come, we will shine like the sun because there's going to be no more evil. There will be no more darkness. The light has overcome darkness and evil. That's, that's what we're saying to each other during the season of Advent. We're saying... Christian friend, don't, don't be discouraged. Uh, don't become cynical. Don't be overcome by evil. Hold on. Be patient. Just, just wait. Keep believing. We're, we're shrouded in some darkness now, but soon we will shine like the sun. You have to be patient. You have to be patient while the seeds of the kingdom take root and steadily grow. It takes time, but the outcome is assured. It makes me think of that uh, famous story uh, from World War II. A group of POWs who managed to uh, find scraps of bits and they put together a radio and they hid the radio in their bunks. At one point, that radio told them that the war had ended. It ended four days before the messengers and, and liberators reached their camp. So, for four days, they knew victory would soon arrive. So for four days, they waited patiently, enduring their pitiable circumstances as their anticipation and their joy increased with every ticking second of the clock. Well, fellow Christians, how much more should we rejoice in the coming of God's kingdom through Jesus and draw strength from Him, even as the works of evil linger a little longer? I say again to you that the kingdom of heaven has broken in because Jesus broke the seal of his tomb on that first Easter morning, and a power broke into the world that wasn't yet present. When that seal was broken, uh, God initiated his restoration project here on earth. It, it's what we're waiting for. It's what, we're, it's what we're experiencing in part. It's what we long for in full. That's, that's what we're looking to in Advent. Which gets me to this last bit of good news, which another pastor tweeted out late last night. I saw it, and I said, that's it right there. The good news of Advent isn't that we are faithful in our waiting, because we often aren't. The good news of Advent isn't that we're faithful in our waiting, but that Jesus is faithful in his coming. And when he comes to take us with him, we will then shine like the sun.